Thanks a lot. You can be seated. If you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just always so thrilled to see uh, folks come back. Uh, if you're brand new, thanks for coming. Hopefully I see you again and I can talk about you that way. And for people that you're here, this is your church. Thank you so much. I've, we're just having such a great time here as a church. And I'm just so grateful that God has allowed us to be together. And uh, I hope that what happens today helps you take your next step toward God. I want to just repeat something that Becky said that you notice that we're under renovation Many of you have done this in your own homes in the past, and it, it means a little bit of heartburn. So if you have a kid in children's ministry somewhere in this first floor, their classrooms are not going to be available next week because they're going to be carpeting them all week, and we have to move stuff around. So thank you for your patience. We invite you to bring your kids in here. I'm thinking about like even doing a shorter sermon than usual for your sake. And... Um, uh, but you can watch online later, listen to the podcast, or, you know, the cry rooms are still available. Whatever's going to work best for you and your family. This is such a milestone for our church to be doing this. And uh, if you're just catching up, we are in the middle of renovating our hallways and all of our downstairs classrooms. And we have an opportunity that I've been asking our church to pray about. We're calling it Get It Done Sunday. September 1st is Get It Done. And between now and then, I'm asking you to pray about how you may be able to contribute to, this, to, to us completing this project, which would mean this worship center and all of our upstairs. And we can do it all for $130,000. And that's what we're trying to raise. I don't know if we'll raise it. We're not big at fundraising here. I'm not going to twist your arms. I'm just asking you to pray about it. Um, it's a great opportunity in front of us because the, the carpeting contractor is making this carpet available to us at their cost. It's airport quality uh, carpet, and so it's just a great deal for us, and we want to take advantage of that. But that, again, that's up to your situation and, and what God is asking you to do. So that week of September 1st, I'll just, we'll, I'll just keep reminding you, but that week we'll give you some instructions for those of you that are, that are thinking, you know, I want to get involved. I want to be a part of this. So uh, that's the infomercial. Thanks. So uh, before we get started today, I want to play a little game with you that I created. I made this game up. It's called Worth It or Not Worth It. And I'm going to put some slides up here, and I'm going to ask you, are these things worth it or not? So play along with me, okay? The first slide we have is a cup of coffee. Now, you have the free coffee at church for a 50-cent donation, or you can pay $3.65 for a latte at Starbucks. Uh, you know, the, many of you are paying twice that much. How many of you, in comparison to the church free coffee in Starbucks, how many of you say that extra money at Starbucks is worth it? Raise your hand. It's worth it. Yeah, baby, I'm with you. They got me. I'm hooked on it too. But I love the church coffee too. You know, that's some, that's some quality stuff we got. You should know. Okay, next slide. Worth it or not worth it? You can get a box of wine for 15 bucks, which uh, breaks down to two and a quarter. A bottle, or there's actually a bottle of wine. I have three of these at home. Uh, $19,702, you know. I grew up on Champipple. You know what that is? Fred Sanford used to talk about that. That's champagne and ripple mixed. Just kidding. So how many of you would say that more expensive bottle of wine is so worth it? Raise your hand. Yeah, me neither. Okay, so uh, next slide. Here you go. You got a 1995 Toyota Tacoma with over 300,000 miles on it. 
It's worth $2,700 in Blue Book, or you can get the brand new Ford 450 for $86,000. How many of you say the new Ford is worth it? Raise your hand. <laughs> so it uh, must be all uh, mechanics, because fixer repair daily, right, compared to Toyota. Uh, found on road dead, you guys know all these. <laughs> so actually, this Toyota is my truck that I drove for 20 years. That thing, uh, the only thing I ever replaced it uh, in 20 years was a water pump. And it's still in service in the Lawrence Farm out in uh, wine country. Uh, my kids employ it, and it's kind of like an indentured slavery now out there doing work for them. But it's still running, and there's nothing wrong with it. How many of you, did we already ask, like, how many would go for the Ford? Some of you said you would. Okay, one more slide. No, another slide. Uh, you, you can get the Walmart $78 bicycle, or you can get uh, a custom uh, mountain bike for over $7,300. How many of you think the upgraded mountain bike is worth it? Raise your hand. Everybody that rides a mountain bike knows that that bike is worth it. You take that Walmart bike out there, it's not going to do it for you. But um, Okay, all right, next slide. Last slide. $20 uh, drawstring sweats, or you can go to Lululemon and pay 100 bucks for them. So how many of you think the Lulus are worth it? Yeah, represent. Yeah, you guys are all styling in your expensive sweats. I really wish they would bring the $20 drawstring sweats back. You know, those come in awful handy when you've been, like, strapping on the feed sack a little too much around the house. Those are very comfortable. If they bring back... Um, uh, parachute pants, I'm going to be totally styling. So anyway, that's, thanks for playing along. That's worth it. Not worth it because we're starting a new series uh, today. It's a short one, just three weeks. We're calling So Worth It. And So Worth It, you know, it's like when we use that phrase, we're talking about something that was a challenge to us. Maybe we were a little apprehensive. Maybe it was going to cost us something. But like we felt uncomfortable about it, but we decided to do it. And then we looked back on it, even after all that anxiety about doing it, and we said, it was so worth it. And that's what I think Jesus had in mind when he said this in Mark's gospel, chapter 10. He said, mark my words, no one who sacrifices because of me and the gospel will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times. So worth it is a series about some of the things that we as Christians a little uncomfortable about, apprehensive about, if we're honest, we're not too keen about. But once we've implemented them in our lives, we look back and we say, that was so worth it. I'm going to talk about one of those today, and it's this. It is worth the effort to be intentional about money. It is so worth it. Because intentional use of your money, well, regardless even if you're not intentional, it affects your past. Some of us can testify to that. It affects where we are today. It certainly affects our future, and it's going to affect eternity as well. We're going to talk about that today. It affects you. It affects your loved ones, and it affects people that you don't even know their name. It affects your state of happiness and peacefulness or it affects whether you live a life of stress and anxiety. 
It, it makes dreams come true and disasters come home to roost. Before we jump into uh, the passage I want to look at, I want to just make two kind of introductory remarks, observations about money when it comes to the Bible. Uh, the first one is this, that most Americans are intentional about making money, but not using money. And our level of debt is a testimony of this. Uh, I'm going to throw a few stats up here. Credit card debt in America is up by 5% over last year, and our, our carryover debt month to month in this country, is uh, credit card debt, is $423 billion. The average U.S. household credit card debt carried over each month is more than $6,700. So you can see if you're kind of average right now, but you know, we're all paying interest on that money over and over, month after month. And you know that 10% of Americans don't even believe that they'll ever pay that debt off. And you know, there's no statistic for the American that thinks they're going to pay it off, but they never will because they won't change some of their habits. And this stat comes from Dave Ramsey, uh, Financial Peace University, 89% of the people in a typical American congregation, so we're talking about church-going folks here, don't have a financial safety net. In fact, less than half of them could deal with a $1,000 emergency. We're intentional about making money. Most of you are going off to work. You're working hard. Some of you are working overtime, working two jobs, got a side thing going all the time. But you, but you just not really thinking about how to use that money. We're going to talk about that today. And then the second introductory thought is this, that Jesus never separated faith from money. In fact, he connected faith and money. Some people say, well, I don't think, you know, you should talk about money at church. You should just talk about Jesus. But how can you talk about Jesus without talking about the things that he talked about? You know that over half of the 30-plus parables that Jesus told involved Money. They were either about money or they were in the context of money. And he often used money as a background because he knew how important it was to people then, as it is to us today, because it has bearing on every aspect of our lives. I'll bet you talked about money this week to somebody. Maybe the reason we prefer to leave it out of the faith conversation is not so much a, a statement about how Jesus felt about money. It's more about how important money is to us. But, but you can't say that money wasn't important to Jesus because he told many stories about it, and here's one of them in Luke 16. Jesus told this story to his disciples. A rich man hired a manager to handle his affairs, but soon a rumor went around that the manager was thoroughly dishonest. So his employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about your stealing from me? Get your report in order because you're going to be dismissed. So there's a rumor going around. Someone's ratted him out. Or maybe the facts aren't adding up. Or maybe in years past they had a lax audit of the business, but this year somebody knew what they were doing and some things have become uh, and brought into the light. 
But in, in the end, you have a money manager who has used his position of trust to steal from the owner. And in verse 3, when confronted with this, the manager thought to himself, now what? I'm, I'm through here. And I don't have the strength to go out and dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. I know just the thing, and then I'll have plenty of friends to take care of me when I leave. So this manager is already thinking through. He, he's desperate, and he's creating a plan because he's under the threat of getting clipped. And if he gets clipped in his business, this is going to be on his resume, and he's not going to be able to find another job. And it's his competency and his trust that make him viable in this industry. And he's smart enough to know that he can't do manual labor, which is probably the only thing that's going to be left to him. So he is going to end up unemployable in his field and incapable of doing anything else. So he acts very quickly. In verse 5, he invites each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, tear up that bill and write another one for 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. A thousand bushels of wheat was the reply. Here, the manager said, take your bill and replace it with one for only 800 bushels. So he meets with all the clients and he tells them to tear up their old uh, bill and rewrite a new one. And, and in some cases, cutting their bill in half. Now, is this this one last ruse by this manager? Is he, is he leveraging maybe the fact some scholars say that not all wealthy people of this day can read and write? And so he's, he's pulling a one last fast one on him? This plan helps him win the gratitude of the debtors. It might line him up for a job after he gets fired, right? It may be assuring their silence, and it might even be a future opportunity for blackmail. But what's interesting here is not his behavior. Because, folks, this story is as old as people. You know, this is Jesus telling the story, which he told stories that people were familiar with. This was going on. It's still going on. And people still think they're going to get away with it. But that's not what this story is about. What's remarkable about this story is his owner, the owner's response. Verse 8, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. You might, if you ever got done in like this, you might have had a different description. Bet you didn't call him a dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the citizens of this world are more shrewd than the godly are. So somewhere in this story, somebody is still dropping the dime on this guy. It, the owner knows that this has happened. But the kicker to the story is that he admires the dishonest manager for his actions. It could be a cynical appreciation. I mean, this is how business gets done, and business is business, and you've got to give the guy props for doing business like we do business. But it's, it, it appears that it's even more than that. He's congratulating him. In my mind, you might disagree with that. He's basically saying, given your situation, given our context where money is king, I have to admire what you did. 
You know, Jesus told stories to make a point, and he often told stories that had a turn in it. It's like he would tell a story that gave you an unlikely hero in the end, or, you know, you'd be listening to the story, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know how this story ends, and then he would do this philosophical jujitsu at the end, end and flip it all around on him. And that's, that's what he does here. I mean, his listeners must have been like taken back and said, I, I never thought about it that way. I mean, wouldn't you have been saying, I mean, like as a Christian person with values and character, wouldn't you be saying, man, you know, he's going to give it to this guy. He's going to say, I'm going to get you locked up and, you know, you're, gonna, you're never going to get out of jail and you're going to pay it all back. And instead, the owner's like, you know, I gotta, I gotta say, that was pretty good. And that's what makes this story, makes it so uncomfortable to us. It's a flip that's like, whoa, you really have to think it through. It's what makes it so puzzling. It's, it's not easy to find the moral of the story here. You know, often uh, when Jesus told a story, there'd be like one lesson. But Either he has multiple lessons in mind or Luke just records kind of like different things that Jesus said in an attempt to kind of pull it all together. There are at least three lessons that Luke records for us. The first one is this. It's wise to be shrewd about money. That's part of what Jesus is saying. It's wise to be shrewd about money. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And then like, the commentary, the subscript here is that, and it is true that the citizens of this world are more shrewd than the godly are. So Jesus is not condoning this man's action, but he is noting his commitment to the value system that he lived in. He's not saying embezzlement is good, but he is saying this man was committed to his cause because they believe wholeheartedly in what they're doing. Their king is money. It's all about making money so in order to succeed you do whatever you can to make money. The manager said, I, I gotta succeed. I gotta, I gotta get out of this alive and still make money. So he creates his plan. His debtors are ready and willing to accept it because money is king to them. And the owner even recognizes, you know, they're all wholeheartedly committed to their success based on their values. And Jesus says the citizens of this world, in their context, are more wise. They are more shrewd about what they're doing. They just have the wrong motivation. See, Christians can take a lesson about this. See, there are people that are wholeheartedly committed to making money. And so a Christian should be wholeheartedly to our values. Right? It, to be shrewd means to have a clear value and goal. Being shrewd means to make decisions that are going to implement those values, and being shrewd means you live by those things that you decided are important to you. What if a Christian was shrewd about the value 
of being a Christian that reflects this, as Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What if we had the same enthusiasm and commitment in our resources toward our value, our mission, which is to help people find and follow Jesus? That would be so worth it. You see, for the Christian, money is not an end. It's a means to an end. For a person who is far from God, the goal is to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I'm not disparaging that. But for the Christian, there's like, there's a lens to look at that money through. Money's not the end. It's a means to an end. It's a means to help us accomplish our mission. What if we were shrewd about that? What if we said, in the past we've talked about living on the 80-10-10 principle. We say, give 10%, save 10%. Live off 80%. But like, find a percentage. There's nothing, you know, I'm not saying that there's a magical percentage, but like, you know, you're going to live off 100% of your money. Actually, some of you are living off more than 100% of your money, right? But we have 100% to spend, to use. Why don't we choose how we're going to spend it? rather than just spending it. Why don't we choose to spend it based on the values that we have? That would be worth it. Now, the next point I'm going to do is actually number three in your notes. It's going to be the same point. I just rearranged it. You, you don't know, but like I write my messages in advance. And even to the last minute, I'm changing them around. This change was like after your note sheet was printed. So we're just going to go to number three, and then we're going to come back to number two, all right? But if, if I've made a value decision about being wise, if I'm going to be shrewd about money, intentionally shrewd based on my values, then this next point speaks to us. How we use money tells us a lot about what we really believe. How we use money tells us a lot about what we really believe. We, we say our values are something. But what we do with our money is a much truer story. That's what Jesus again says as he follows his story up in verse 10, he says, unless you're faithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large ones. If you cheat even a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're trustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you, trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's money, why should you be trusted with money of your own? This, this little section is just pregnant with values. Jesus uses words like faithful and cheating and honest and responsibility and trust and untrustworthy and trusted. You see, Jesus saw how we use money as a truth indicator. It's a truth meter. 
And in verse 13, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we've said it here before, but, you know, Jesus viewed money as the chief competitor for our hearts. That's what he's saying here. It would be easy to say, well, you can either serve me or Satan, but that's not what he says. And I think that that, that says something about the insightfulness of Jesus as the Son of God. Even at this time, it's like people were the same. The real, the real struggle for us, because it affects so much of our lives, is are we going to serve God or money? Not God or Satan. So, do you have money or does money have you? Some of you quickly say, well, if I don't have enough of it to own me, Britt. But that, that's really not the issue. And I think for many Christians, this is the last battlefield we fight. You know, we're wholeheartedly committed to our faith in our spiritual growth and, and knowing Scripture. Many of you are wholeheartedly committed. Your hearts are given fully to the character that you want to reflect. You're wholeheartedly committed to the Christian work ethic. You're wholeheartedly committed to your marriage and doing your marriage the way God designed. And you're wholeheartedly committed to parenting the way the Bible tells us to parent. But this last area is a big challenge for us. It's kind of like the last area. Can, you know, Jesus, I'll trust you with my marriage. I'll trust you with my parenting. I'll trust you with my character development. I'll trust you with my work ethic. I'll trust you with my eternal soul. But trusting you with my money, that's a whole other story. It's a chief competitor for our heart. And yet, if we serve God more than money, it will be worth it. Now, number two is number three. Same notes. Last point. Money is an earthly resource that affects eternity. Money is an earthly resource that affects eternity. And Luke 16, 9 Jesus says, I tell you, use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And in this way, your generosity stores up a reward for you in heaven. Now, this is puzzling, and I can't fully explain it. But what Jesus is saying is our earthly wealth has something to do with eternity. What we do here makes a difference in heaven when it comes to our money. They say you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead in terms of eternal impact and consequence. You see, there's a certainty in being a Christian. We have a certainty, whether we doubt it sometimes, we know that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We know that our, that our souls have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We know that we have eternal life. But you know, there's another certainty. This summer, we talked about the promises of God and standing upon them. And there is a certainty about the way we live our lives today 
and there is a certainty about what that means in eternity in our lives in the lives of those that matter to us and often in the lives of people that we don't even know the apostle paul echoes this and for when he writes to timothy in first timothy chapter 6 verse 17 he says command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. He says, for the rich, which is most of us here by world standards, do good deeds, but not just good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That means that the resource, this earthly, non-moral resource that I have in my hand, money, it, it has an impact in eternity. So if you want to make an impact, put as much effort into using money is making it. We said earlier, it's like most of you are like, you're, you're making money, you're working hard. Some of you are working a hard job, you're at a high level, you're cranking out, your, your average week is 80 hours. Some of you are working two jobs, you got a side gig. Some of you are two income families, both of you are working multiple jobs. We're all working hard. But it's how we use our money that will make a difference. See, money's like a tool. A tool helps you accomplish the goals that you've established. How many of you used a tool this week? Not money as a tool, but you've used some kind of tool. So have I. I, I trimmed shrubs this week. With, I used loppers. Uh, I used a socket set and a, a screw uh, gun to tighten some furniture. I hung a clock. You know, it was a hammer. That was an easy one, nail and hammer. I love when, thing, when projects come together like that. We all use tools to accomplish the things that we're trying to accomplish. And, and money, that's all money is. It's a tool. And if we put our effort into using it, not just making it, with a, with a view toward the value of helping people find and follow Jesus, with a view toward... God holds me accountable. God has given me this resource. And we don't let it own us. We're going to make a difference. Now, I want to quickly say to all of you, God is going to love you whether you do this or not. This has no bearing on God's acceptance of you, nor of mine, because I have no idea who gives what. I, I am intentionally that way. I've told you that before. I don't want to know. But God is, God is going to love you just as much as, as if you, even if you're miserly, God still loves you. You can't change that fact. In fact, remember this verse in Ephesians 3.19 when the Apostle Paul prays this to the church at Ephesus. He says, I, may you experience the love of Christ though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. Don't you love that? That verse is for you, whether you give to this church or any charity. 
That would be my prayer for you. So here's the thing. Somebody thought you were worth it. And over the years, people have invested in churches and ministries and missions. And most of us became Christians because somebody did that. But there's, but there's someone else. God thought you were so worth it too. Don't ever forget that. He was, you're so worth it that his son was willing to go to the cross for you. And you can't change how much God loves you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that no one is so far from God that God's love can't reach them. The only difference is if, you know, if you're going to make a dent. And so I know I'm not the boss of you. I'm not trying to be, you know, like trying to tell everybody what to do about this. It's like this is a daily struggle for all of us, but I am here to persuade you, and I, I want to wrap up with this thought. It's like, if you really want to make an impact, if you want to use your resources to make a difference, then set a goal to turn your stuff into stories. Turn your stuff into stories. Cindy and I did this uh, a number of years ago where we thought, you know, our, our kids aren't going to miss our money. What if we, what if whatever we have, whether it's like 10 bucks or 10,000 bucks, what if we took what we had and rather than just leaving a bunch of money to our kids, what if we gave them experiences that we could have together so that we would have stories? Which was another way of saying, I get to go on some great vacations and, and tell myself, this is for my kids. So we set a goal to start making stories in our family. Make stories in your family. Turn your stuff into stories. Turn your stuff into stories at your church. You know, if you give to this church, those kids running down the hallway when we get out of here with their Sunday school papers, you're part of that story. You're part of this remarkable staff that God has put here. You're paying so that they can do full-time, and in some cases part-time, do ministry here to make a difference in your life and in the lives of your kids. When you walk down this hallway, if you've given this hallway, you're creating a story about what God is doing here just in our campus. You're a part of the marriages that are being healed. You're a part of the divorcees that are being cared for. for you're part of the people that, who have experienced grief and loss. You're part of their story. You're part of the story of helping people find and follow Jesus and the kids or the adults who get baptized here next Sunday, which, by the way, if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, step out. Go public with your faith. Sign up for baptism. But you're part of that story. If you give to this church, you're part of the missionaries that we support and the stories that they tell. And you're part of the numerous growth opportunities that people have here in small groups and classes and, and courses and fellowship groups. You're part of all of these stories. And, and the point isn't that you hit some magical number. The point is that you start somewhere and become part of the stories that are happening here. And don't let it stop here. Don't let it just be here. There are things that you're passionate about and missions and outreach. It's like Become part of those stories. Turn your stuff into stories. And the number of dollars that you spend on it at this point is not 
relevant. What is relevant is that you become part of it. And when you do, I think when you start your stories now, you're going to start saying, that was so worth it. Because when you die, no one's going to tell stories about your stuff. They're going to tell stories about the things, the stories that you created in other people's lives. I'm going to wrap up with this comment from Jesus in Luke 16, 14. I'm going to put the verse up here. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, naturally scoffed at all this. I love how the message puts that. They, they loved their money so much that it bugged them when Jesus said this, when he told the story. I'm going to close with a knock-knock joke. A sermon like this needs a little levity, doesn't it? So knock-knock. Who's there? The Pharisees that dearly love their money. The Pharisees that dearly love their money, who? Exactly. We're not telling their stories. They don't have them. Because they love their stuff more than stories. If you want your stuff to turn into stories and you want to make an impact, and be, then be intentional about money. Be shrewd and wise and develop a plan based on your values and stick with that plan, even if it costs you. Don't let money own you. You own it. And every opportunity you get, turn what God gives you into stories that will last into eternity. And I promise you, in the life to come and in this life, you will realize it's so worth it. Let's pray.